Uh, I want you to open your Bibles, if you have them, one final time uh, to the book of Esther, where today uh, we're going to finish by looking at chapters 9 and 10. So we're going to finish uh, the, the, our time in Esther today, and then next week we're going to kick off uh, a, a new series through uh, Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. So we're going to look at First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, we'll be there uh, really uh, through uh, the end of February. So um, just get ready. I'm excited about this series. I believe actually our time in First and Second Thessalonians is going to uh, proclaim a lot of the same themes and truths that we've seen throughout Esther. Uh, but what I want to do as... Um, as you turn there, is I want to take a moment just to remind us of a couple of things that we've worked through and that we've been met with since this series started. So one of the difficulties uh, in preaching uh, books of the Bible exegetically, so we start and we preach chapter 1, verse 1, through uh, the entirety of the book is week 1. Uh, you have to give a whole lot of background. You have to talk about uh, the origins of the book. You have to talk about why it was written, who wrote it, if we know. Uh, and then uh, you kind of move on, but you kind of have to do the same thing a little bit in tying the bow on the last week, right? So we have to, we're, we're putting all the pieces together. We're uh, finishing kind of the portrait or the picture of what uh, this book has been. And so uh, I want to remind us of just a couple of things that we've worked through and, and that we've seen in this series. So if you remember uh, that, that we kicked off this series with this understanding that Esther... This book is a story of faith that calls us to trust in God even when we don't see, hear, or feel Him. That's why we named this series Unnamed, because the name of God is not named in the entirety of the book, right? And so this is a story of faith that calls us to trust in God even when we don't see, hear, or feel Him. And so what we did is we presented a theme from the start. And I have the theme up here. I believe it's up, going to be up on the screen. Uh, the theme is this. God has you here for a purpose. Oh, the mouse is dead. Uh, so just, yeah, just follow along with me today. Um, uh, yeah, so God has you here for a purpose and he will always keep his promises even when we feel that he is not there. So each week we've seen, as we've worked through uh, this book, we've seen this, th- this theme arise and play out over and over throughout this series. But you see, in doing so, uh, what I think and I even hope that, that is created is that in each of our lives, as we've worked through this book, that in each of our lives, it has created a greater awareness of how this story speaks to our own lives. Now, I believe, again, that all the Bible does this. But you see, because God is unnamed and yet at work throughout it, Esther is different. Because you see, Esther speaks to the moments in our own lives where God seems to be unnamed and yet is at work through it, revealing himself to us while also making us to wrestle with where we're putting our faith, with where we're placing our security and to what or whom we're giving our worship to. Really what we find in the book of Esther that I think speaks so deeply to our own lives is that we all live in the midst of tension, do we not? 
And you see, it's a tension that is constantly rooted in what it means to follow God when things don't work the way we believe they should. Anybody experience a moment in life where you're like, hey, uh, this is not working out the way I thought it would go. Right? This is not what I had planned. See, because the thing is, is even as, like if you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, one of the things we have to realize is that while we've been redeemed by the blood and we are to follow God, we submit our lives to Him. Guess what? Since the fall, we've been really, really good at seeking to be our own God, have we not? And even though we follow uh, Jesus, even though we've submitted our lives, man, it's really easy for us to kind of want to step back into that when things get hard and that tension gets really heavy and really tight. I mean, you can look around, you can look at your life, and it doesn't take long to feel that tension. Like some of you, you felt it this morning. You felt it this morning, like maybe uh, as soon as you woke up, you just felt maybe the, just some angst and a, a weight and some tension as you got ready, as you struggled to, to, uh, for your kids to, to get their clothes on and get dressed so you can get out the door, right? As you drove here, maybe as you had a conversation with your spouse, maybe it's just a hard season of life for you right now. There's a lot, maybe, maybe you're struggling and dealing with a, a lot of anxiety or depression or uh, something of that nature. And so, man, you feel that tension. Maybe for you today, while it's Sunday, man, the week is already on top of you. Monday hasn't gotten here and you already feel it. For some, the tension is in the midst of a loss of a loved one, whether it was recent or long ago. Man, you still feel that tinge of tension of, man, I didn't think things were going to go this way. The diagnosis that came after what was only to be a checkup. Maybe it's watching someone you love struggle and feeling helpless to help them. You see, we all feel this. We all have these moments, I believe, probably daily, where if we're aware, we could recognize that tension. And you see, in the midst of it all, as believers, we are to be a people who celebrate in the midst of the tension. You see, often we either run to something that will give relief to it, or we become bitter and callous towards God, towards the situation, and or towards others, right? Right? I want you to hear this. I don't mean that as believers we are to be, always have our, uh, what we've termed as our church face on, where everything's good all the time, right? And all the time, God is good. You know, I believe that is a truth. But man, also I believe if you look through scripture, if you look at, man, David's life, if you read the Psalms, man, there's a lot going on there. There is a lot of tension in the Psalms. And David is not afraid to cry out, to wrestle, to even speak about, hey, this is going on and this is not how I thought it would be. You said this, God. And yet, what we see over and over and over again is David worships in the midst of it. You see, the beauty of Esther is that while it is filled with tension, it doesn't hide or run from it. It doesn't try to gloss over it or make it look better than it actually does. No, this book says, hey, this simply is part of the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. Where guess what? You and I have a part to play in the fallen brokenness of it. 
Esther actually highlights the tension and then in the right moment, at the right time, God does something about it. And guess, in, guess what? In each and every one of our lives, we're all going to have this tension. We're all going to wrestle with it. But yeah, I, I would encourage us, don't run from it. But allow God to use it, trust in His timing, because at the right time and in the right moment, I'm not saying it'll be tomorrow or next week or next month. It might be in glory, but He will do something about it. We see this through the story. So quickly, let me just recap what's happened. We've seen that Xerxes, the king, makes foolish decisions as he rules over his people as well as the people of Israel. Esther is removed from her home, and although she in some ways buys into the glamour and allure of Persian culture for gain, she is also given favor by others, and she becomes the queen. All the while, Mordecai, who saves the life of the king, is hated by the man Haman, who would seek to not simply destroy him, but every Jew under Persian control. And so decrees grow out, and the tension rises, and the questions are wrestled with as to why God would allow such things to happen to His chosen people. And yet, through it all, His name is never mentioned. God seems to be nowhere near the people as the edict is written, as Esther commits to seek the welfare of her people, even if she perishes, right? And as Haman moves to construct a 75-foot-tall stake to hang his enemy Mordecai upon, Following an interesting meal with Esther and Xerxes, when Esther's asked a question and given the opportunity to have half the kingdom, and yet she delays it a day. The tension builds and builds and builds, and then what we find is that everything begins to change. Like, if you remember from the story, like, everything starts to change, like, literally overnight. Haman is made to honor Mordecai. Esther reveals her wish and request, her life and her people. Haman is hung upon the stake he had meant to destroy Mordecai upon, and a decree is sent out that states, if tested, the Jewish people had every right to protect themselves from those who might seek to do them harm. And so what we find at the beginning of chapter 9 is that that tension has only continued to build. Even though there have been moments of relief, there's still tension there. There's still the question, will God's people be destroyed on the 13th day of the 12th month, or will they not? And so let's look. We're going to begin to look for the answer to this building tension by reading Esther 9, verse 1. It says this. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. All right, so before we dive in there, and again, I just, I just want to comfort everyone. You might be looking at your Bible right now, and you're like, we have a lot of verses to cover, and this is just verse 1. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of them, okay? Um, but before diving into that, I want to ask a question. How many of you love to be a part of exciting news? You, it's okay, it's a safe place. Like, you can raise your hand. Like, you, like, like all of us, right? Like, if you have a heart, like, and you enjoy things, like, you want to be a part of exciting news. We all enjoy that moment. Now, now, how many of you are to be trusted with exciting news that you're told? Any of you, like, you're to be trusted? Yeah, just a, f- a few hands, right? 
Like you, you're like, hey, you share that exciting news with me, man, I'm going to be joyful with you, but I'm going to let you share that exciting news. Now, how many of you do we have in the room that want to explode with joy when exciting things are shared? And let's be real, again, a safe place. Uh, you maybe can't be trusted to keep it in or keep it together. Right here, right, like all the rest of you, you might be lying, okay? Because I only saw a few hands, a few more, and then there's a whole bunch of you are like, I don't know. Depends on how exciting it is, right? You see, I get it. Like, I'm that person. I'm not ashamed to say it. Many of you know it, okay? Like, if you, I want to say this. If you come to me for counseling, I'm locked down. The hard, the hurt, the struggle, I can take those things, lock them away, and keep it confidential. But if you come to me on just a regular day and tell me something exciting has or is about to happen, man, I'm going to struggle not to share it, okay? Not because I want to steal your thunder, just because, man, I'm excited that something good's happening. Not that I'm, bad's always happening. I don't want you to get that. Like, But I'm just really pumped for you and for the situation and that I got told about it, and so I want to share it with somebody else. I'm just excited. And the thing about that is what I've noticed is that gets me in trouble. Especially with my wife, Haley. Because there's many, many, most of the time, very few times, something exciting happens in our life and then she goes to share someone and they're like, oh, Kyle already told me. And she'll come to me and she'll be like, hey, I want to share exciting stuff. And I just look at her and I'm like, well, you got to be faster. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like... You know, get out there. Like, <laughs> um, you know, I just want to share. And she's like, yeah, but that's my family. And I'm like, well, it's my family too. Uh, you know, I, I want to I be able to share stuff. I share. I need to let her share stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I get it. And guess what? She's gotten faster. Like here recently, I've gone to share some things. And other people have said, now, Haley already told me. It hurts me a little bit, but now I understand, right? Like, I get it, and I want to be more aware of it, all right? But you see, this is exactly what we get at the beginning of chapter 9, I believe. The tension is built up until this point, and following all the good of chapter 8, uh, ended uh, with, uh, man, what happens is there's still a question as to what's going to happen to God's people. Will they be destroyed or not? And if they fight back, will they have the power to prevail? You see, based on what we've seen previously, based on really kind of the the way the book has flowed, before reading 9 and 10, what we can kind of believe or think just naturally is that, man, the tension is just going to get bigger and bigger. The story is just going to grow. There's going to be a major back and forth battle that would unfold, but this is not what we get at all in 9-1. The writer is just too excited. What the writer does in verse 1 of chapter 9 is actually shares the end result at the beginning. The writer has this exciting news and says, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out there. I'll get you the details later. Like this, like if you're reading it after reading the first eight chapters, this is kind of a spoiler alert, right? You're like, wait a second. Like I thought it was going to come a little bit. I'm used to it coming and just kind of extending on. And now it's just like, boom, out of nowhere, it's here. I have a friend... um, Named Jordan, that's also a, a pastor in Round Rock, and we're big Cowboys fans. And so we every Sunday we text each other, sometimes in celebration, many times in grief. Uh, but we, something I do is, is I'll text him during the game, and a lot of times he's at baseball for his sons. 
And he'll immediately, I'll just respond with something general. He'll say, don't tell me anything. I have it recorded. Please don't tell me. And guess what? Like, if it's really exciting, it's going to be really hard for me not to, like, share a, a GIF or a meme or something, right? Just to kind of show him how I'm feeling about the game. But I know there have been times when I didn't know he was doing that. And I've just said, hey, man, I can't believe we're up 27 to 3 in the first quarter. And he's like, don't tell me that. He was hoping that he was waiting like he wanted, like he, he wasn't expecting me to do that. And here in chapter 9 verse 1, we see that on the 13th day of the 12th month, a day that was selected by the demonic conjuring dice roll of Haman when the enemy hoped to gain mastery over God's people, the opposite happens. You see, what we see is that God's people are not destroyed, but they gain mastery over those who hated them. And I think after reading this, based on the way the story has been written, there's some part of us that expects so much more. But all we get is the relief of the end in the beginning. And I think that's actually a good thing. If you want to go further, you can read verses 2 through 16. It'll give you the details. But that's after the fact. And so why does the author choose to write the end the way that, they, that it does? Well, most commentators believe that the author has a great reason for doing this. You see, the author of Esther, while building tension throughout the telling of the story, the end of the story has never been in question. And so to tell the conclusion with no suspense is not really an issue for the author because to them, the outcome is I've been known all along. And if you don't believe me, you turn back to Esther 4. There's an interesting thing in Esther chapter 4 that I think we tend to look over, but I think it makes more sense in here in chapter 9. Esther 4 is the pivotal chapter that actually starts the ball rolling in the lives of Mordecai and Esther. And their plan to stand in the gap for God's people. And in the midst of the chapter, we see that while Mordecai begs for Esther to go to the king, Esther's still wrestling with whether or not she can. Actually, what she says is she says, look, I don't even know if I can go before him. It's been 30 days since he asked me to come to him. Mordecai responds this way, though, in 13 and 14. It's that famous text in this passage, but there's a key instance I think we need to note. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, listen to this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, what we find here in chapter 4 is that even in the midst of the unknown and God being unnamed, there's no question of what the outcome would be. And so, man, a question I have for our own lives is as we sit and wrestle with that, guess what? We know the end of the story. Do we live with the same kind of faith? Even in the unknown, even in the tension. And are we ready to step up and step in? You see, these verses are easy to miss because they're shared in the midst of the tension. You see, I think often in life we become blind to what we, to what we know the outcome will ultimately be because all we can see is the reality of the tension befalling us in the moment. We struggle to see the beauty of faith in the midst of the storm. You see, what we see from Mordecai is an example of faith and trust in God who has a purpose for our lives and will always keep His promises. And the reason Mordecai knows that is because he knows all the stories of Scripture, right? Like he knows uh, how Moses was delivered in God's people. He knows how uh, all these things have come about and happened. 
He believes the theme that God has a purpose for our lives and that he will always keep what? He will always keep his promises for his people. Now, does Mordecai know how it'll work out? No. Does he know if Esther will be the one to be part of it? No, but he does know that God will deliver on his promises. And so guess what? For the writer, when you get to the 13th day of the 12th month, we can trust and know that this is the result of the story. Was to, it was to be this way. God would keep his promises, his people would be delivered, and his enemies would be judged. And guess what? Our lives are the same. Like we live in the now. You and I live in the now. I, I hope you do. If you don't, we need to talk. But we live in the now. We live in the middle of the story. We, as God's people, live in what we call the now, not yet. We understand that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan now, but he has, he has not yet made all things new. And in the midst of that, there's much tension. There are many moments of uncertainty where we feel stuck, hurt, tossed to and fro. But through it all, we, like Mordecai, can trust that in the end, God wins. That in the end, that, that He through it all has purpose for our lives and He'll keep all His promises. One writer had this to say about life in the middle. When he said that we don't always understand what God's doing. We don't always know why He lets certain things happen in the middle of our stories. But Esther comes to tell us a different story. However bleak things may seem, however hopeless they appear, however impossible they look, the book of Esther has shown us that our God is the God of great reversals. And so following verse 1, we see the, we see three, the result is three things happen. In verses 2 through 16, again, I'm not going to read them, God's people destroy their enemies. In verses 17 through 19, we see that God's people rest. The fasting that they did has now turned into feasting. And then in verses 20 through 28, God's people are called to remember. And so I'm going to read 20 through 28 because I think it's key for us to remember. It says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. And that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim. After the term pur, therefore, because all that was written in this letter and, and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written. And at the same time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. It's a lot of verses, I know. 
You see, following all that's taken place, God's people find themselves at rest from their enemies. But God does not simply want them to rest. He wants them to remember what has been done for them. And so Esther and Mordecai declare that every year, on the 14th and 15th days of the 12th month, God's people are to feast in remembrance of what God did in keeping His promises to His people. It says in verses 27 and 28 that the people said, No, we're going to be obligated to this. We're not going to let this fall into disuse. And they call this feast the Feast of Purim. Every year they would feast in remembrance. But in doing it, they would read aloud the book of Esther in its entirety to remind everyone that even when you can't see where God is, even when He seems to be nowhere near, you can always know that He has a purpose for His people and He will keep His promises. Now that name, Purim, it's named after the actual dice that Haman used, the pur, to cast lots and seeking to destroy them. And it was actually, the feast was called this to remind the people that God is the God who reverses the destruction of His people. Again, this relief was not a gained relief. This was a given relief by the grace and faithfulness of God. God's people during this feast would actually sing a song, and one of the verses says this, All the world was struck with amazement when Haman's purr became our purim. All the world was struck with amazement when Haman's purr became our purim. One more neat thing about this celebration is that when it was established, it falls actually at the end of the Jewish calendar. And so the Jewish calendar begins every year with the celebration of Passover where they celebrate how God delivered His people and the calendar ends with the celebration of Purim where they celebrate how God delivered His people. Guess what, church? As God's people, we celebrate day in and day out the reality that when you wake up, every day the tomb is empty, victory has been won, and you have been delivered from the penalty of your sin. And when you go to sleep, no matter how the day went, you go to sleep knowing and celebrating that the tomb is empty, victory has been won, and you have been delivered from the penalty of your sin. God kept His promise and He will continue to do so. And therefore, you can live with God-given purpose. And how do we know this? What's the answer? Jesus. You see, God knew that a day would come when the, when the one who came, and the one who claimed Jesus and said that he would rescue his people, instead he would die upon the cross and all hope seemed lost. The story of the cross looks from all angles like defeat. It would seem that Satan's purr, that Satan's gamble had paid off. But you see, through it all, Jesus did not forget Purim. He knew that God, even when it looked like He was nowhere to be found. Because on the cross, what does God, Jesus cry out? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Jesus knew that God had a purpose for His Son and that He would keep His promise and bring about the greatest reversal the world has ever known. And so even in death, Jesus never gave up hope because He knew how the story would end. God did not abandon His Son to the tomb. No, on the third day He rolled it away and raised His Son just as He said He would. In the words of Timothy Cain, the day that Satan sought to destroy God's only Son became the day that God's people received relief from all their enemies. 
For Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell, disarmed the accuser, and set his people free. This is the good news we're to remember. But also, this is the good news that frees us so that we can live differently. Let me close with the last three verses of chapter 10. It says this, King Xerxes imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So in verse 3, we see the response of salvation, of rescue, of reversal. You see, salvation produces a heart and a life that, that, that seeks to have action for others. We saw last week that God's people received light, gladness, joy, and honor. You see, they received a place. We, as followers of Jesus, have received a place in the kingdom. Therefore, our life is to be one that's lived to seek the welfare of others. Just as Mordecai did. He said he sought the welfare of the people. We are to seek the welfare of others. For the sake of displaying and proclaiming the good news. Which leads into it says that he spoke peace. You see the gospel is a story of peace. That peace has come. The prince of peace has come. And where there was no peace he made it. And it's good news that we are to speak to one another as the church. Because guess what? In the midst of that tension, we need one another to come and speak peace to one another. I don't know about you, but when when I'm sitting in that tension, I need someone to come speak peace to me. Say, remember what God has done. Remember His faithfulness. But also, uh, the world around us And it's in turmoil, and we need to speak peace into it. And so how do we respond to a book like this? Well, first we rest. We rest by living into the victory that has been won. When we wake up, we wake up and the tomb is empty, and when we go to sleep, we go to sleep, realizing the victory that that Jesus has won and the tomb is still empty. We feast upon the grace of God that has been abundantly given. And today, if you don't find yourself at rest, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, run to that rest. He is rest. Run to that peace. He is peace. Go to someone else and say, hey, man, will you, uh, can I talk with you about this? I don't have any peace. And if they talk to you about it, give them Jesus. Not better, seven ways to be a better person. I mean, today, if you don't know the true peace that is Jesus, man, I invite you to come to Him today. That you would find rest in Him. Secondly, I ask that you would respond. Today, where do you find yourself in the middle? Where is your faith and what is God calling you to be faithful in the midst of? And how much you live in light of the rest that you have in Him. We talked about it last week. Who are you pleading for that doesn't know Jesus? And how are you going to proclaim it to them? 
And in doing so, that you would simply invite. Invite them in and start with the good news. Guess what? Like when you share the gospel, you actually begin like chapter 9 did. We begin with the good news, right? Hey, let me tell you about what Jesus has done. I'm going to give you the spoiler up front. Jesus has done something and it's amazing. Now, there is some bad in the middle. We're broken, lost, dead in our sin. But guess what? This is what Jesus has done for you. Share the hope in the midst of the bad. Expound that the victory has been won. That they need saving, but that Jesus came and reversed the curse. And inviting people in, we also, we, we live out, we should go and share the good news. Like you can share it. And then we remember. We're going to do that in two ways this morning. I'm going to have the team come back up. And before we share in communion, we're going to sing a song of remembrance. Um, And so we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And after that song's over, we're going to remember by sharing in communion together. And so I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll stand and we're going to sing together. Father, we thank you that you have not abandoned us. We thank you that you are working even when we don't see, feel, or hear you. God, that we can look to your word. We can look to the transformation you brought about in our lives. We can look to one another and we can see that peace and rest, purpose is only found in you. So God, we thank you for Esther's story. We thank you that it is a story of faith of wrestling, of tension, but that in the end, that you bring rest. But God, in that, you call us to remember. And God, ultimately, that remembrance is of your son that came and gave his life so that we might know the rest that is found in you. That he won the greater victory, that he brought about the greatest reversal. And so in the midst of the middle of life, in the midst of the now, as we long for the newness to come, may we be reminded that you have purpose for our lives and that you will fulfill your promises, all of them. May that give us great hope and celebration. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship. Thank you.